Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter Espresso, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we uh, unitedly come to you, those who know you, those who are seeking to know you. We pray that your influence will be known in our lives. We'll recognize you and uh, we will have our hearts open to the things that are true and the things that are not. Uh, we just ask you to help us to forget them. We are grateful for those who help keeping the show and the ministry running. And we just thank you, Lord, for this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we begin the program tonight, I have become, over the years, past couple decades, a radical advocate of faith in God. Faith in God. Uh, I was not born this way, uh, but instead have been trained and taught uh, by him with a lot of failures on my part to really trust that. Uh, but the more we rely on him, the more he comes through with us. And this state of mind typically uh, comes with trials and difficulties and uncertainty and errors, on, at least in my experience, my part. But I want to reiterate my advocacy of this, that, that the more you can distrust in him, the better. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will direct your paths. Submit to him and he will direct your path. My daughter Delaney, who directs the show with Kathy Maggie, decided after getting her undergraduate in kinesiology at a Christian college uh, in California, said, you know, I think I want to pursue a, getting a master's in architecture and possibly engineering. And uh, this was not her only ambition. She, she's, she said, I want to get that. But she said, I also want to get it from one of the best schools in the country. And so she applied to six or seven, I don't remember which, five or six or seven. And not an easy task, especially when you didn't study a related topic in your undergraduate. Uh, she's very uh, creative portfolio, but uh, last week she had kind of a dark night of the soul and, and upon reflection said, you know, it's just going to be a miracle. Those are her words. It's going to be a miracle if I get accepted. And uh, we reiterated to her, trusting God no matter what. And this morning she uh, got, not only got accepted to one of the top seven schools uh, in uh, architecture, but it's the only school that offers a joint engineering program and a financial scholarship, which we greatly appreciate. Uh, and she's still waiting on, to hear from the other schools. I want to make this matter clear. Delaney is a very creative, very smart gal, but her getting into this program is an act of God. It is a miracle. Not because she's not capable, obviously they've allowed her in, but it just, didn't, it just didn't line up with her doing everything that everybody else has done to try to get it. And uh, would I share this story if she didn't get accepted? I would. Because in the end, if she didn't, then the lesson would be on that end. Do we trust him when we don't get what we want? Uh, gratefully, she did. And whatever it is you have been created by God to do, be that thing. And go to him and let him lead. And he will direct your paths. With that, how about a moment from the Word? 
and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Over the years, uh, my wife and I have had this uh, conversation. I've told her, and I've mentioned on the show, you know, I, I'm plagued by the homeless situation, in part because I don't see a viable answer to it, one that would please everybody involved. And since we've moved to Salt Lake, we've moved downtown. We're very close, very right down the street from the homeless center. And to me, if to, I have the idea that if all the states came together and threw money into a city of refuge that the Old Testament had out in the middle of the desert, and built up a city of refuge, and anybody who was homeless would be put there, and they could have the necessities of life and be cared for. That's the way I would sell it. Of course, that would run into civil rights, and you know, uh, homeless people, they have civil rights, and some of them don't wanna be in a city of refuge out in the middle of the desert. They wanna be in downtown Salt Lake, or in Florida, or by the beaches, or whatever it is. So know that I am not new to the subject and have been engaging with the homeless for, since 2006, uh, here on almost a daily basis. Our brother here at campus, Dave, he has been trying to work through a solution that would meet the need effectively rather than just putting a bandage over it is how he put it. So we've had some discussions. And while the Bible certainly talks about the poor, I personally think that we as Christians might need, it's a suggestion, begin to differ differentiate between the terms homeless and the poor. Between homeless or... Uh, the homeless and the poor, we'll just categorize it as that. It's not that the homeless can't be called poor or that some of the poor aren't homeless, but to equate the two places Christians in a situation of constantly being uh, not only abused, but unwise, unwise stewards, because we're under the onus of we're supposed to help the poor. A person who walks up to you who looks apparently very poor asks for something and, and, the, and then you feel like you should do something, so you do it, and then the, two steps later, another one says, we're into this Christian onus of, you know, what are we supposed to do with this, right? So it's, this might lead to the first distinction between the homeless and the poor. The poor don't necessarily abuse. Let's just categorize it this way. They're merely poor and not sufficient means to make ends meet. Let's put it that way. And I understand it's hard to actually know, but there are indications and evidences that might at least help in our daily assessment of how to handle this growing situation, at least in the cities. When abuses are present, I tend to move in my mind from someone who needs my help to someone who doesn't need my help. Let me give you an example. Uh, my daughter was at a stop sign, a stoplight in her car, and she watched um, a kid, a younger guy with his friends in a homeless section say to his friends, watch this. And he was laughing with them and he turned and he came over to her car and he went, please help, please help. So he was all happy and he said, watch this. And he came and as he came, he went, please help. And that was an abuse. And when she refused to help him, he went from this to, <laughs> went back to his friends was talking like, oh, I didn't get, the, get that one. You know, that's an abuse. Uh, and, and so there's a difference when something's being abused. Uh, at the same time, we might hear of a woman who has lost her husband or a man who's lost his wife working a job at a bank, can't make ends meet. That's poor. And so that's one factor. Another factor to consider is if a person we are helping enjoys their homelessness. And, you know, many of them do. And it's something we just don't say. 
but they really do. I'm, I'm out there because uh, I work publicly in public places, and I think many want to be exactly where they are, and I actually think it's incumbent upon people in society uh, to be careful of how you provide for those who just say, hey, screw the system, screw responsibility, in fact, screw you, I just want you to give me what I want. And it literally is in their makeup if you sit and talk with them. Uh, I talked to a police officer yesterday morning who works downtown in among the homeless. That's part of her job. And she said 5%, in her estimation, she's done it for 19 months, 5% are, are the people who say, I want help and I want to get out of this situation. And she said, there is help to get them out. But she said 95% of the people she's with, and they're by the hundreds down there daily, she says they either want to be there, they are rebellious against the law, they are mentally ill, and that's a, that's a whole other problem we have to talk about, or they are using drugs and or are mentally ill. One of, it's in that drugs or alcohol. So uh, those who are of the 95% want to be where they are are going against Paul's directive, what he said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should they eat. That's what Paul says. So, you know, uh, uh, my uh, son-in-law-to-be was walking down the street with my other daughter, and a homeless guy came up and said, hey, can I have some money? He says, no, I, I, I'm not going to give you any money. And good Christian that you are. And he was stunned. He felt so bad. I said, you may have said, well, you know, Scripture said, you know, Jesus wouldn't do that. And I said, well, what does Scripture say? If you don't work, you don't eat. And, and look, at, I, I don't want to become cynical and hardened, but we do want to come up with something. And I've just been on my heart as I've talked with Dave. We have to remember, Jesus left this world with poor on it. He came as the Savior of the world. And when he died, was crucified, resurrected, and ascended, there were still poor people remaining here who he didn't feed. We're not going to cure poverty. We're not going to cure homelessness. Uh, that is imputing our ideals and fears upon many people who want to be without a home and responsibility. But I want to just point out this last thing. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist has been put in prison. He sent his disciples to come to Jesus and say, are you really the Messiah that was promised or should we look for another? And it says this, Now when John had heard uh, in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. Go tell him about what I'm doing. You ready? Verse 5, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Ready? And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Do you notice that he didn't say the poor were given loaves of bread? The poor were given houses to live, to, to live in? The poor had all their financial problems solved by me? He didn't say that. He says the poor have had the gospel preached to them. His gift and support to the poor was he shared the good news, which will alleviate much of what's on the heart and help clear the way for a better existence, possibly, if they have at least their mind and heart set straight with God in charge instead of themselves. In Acts chapter 3, verse 2, beginning at verse 2 all the way through verse uh, 8, Peter uh, comes up and a guy's begging and he looks at Peter as if to expect something. And Peter says, gold and silver, I have none. But that which I have, I'll give to you. 
Now, I doubt very much that Peter had no gold and silver. But what he meant was, I don't have enough to give to every single person I meet, but what I do have to give to every person I meet, I will give to you, and that is Jesus Christ. And he raises him up, he heals him, and helps him stand on his own two feet in the name of Christ. Emblematic of what we do when we share the gospel with somebody. We give them that hope that helps them stand and walk on their own two feet. How, besides sharing the gospel, to get them and others to hear is not the our business. That's between God and His Holy Spirit. But our solution right now, as far as I can see, with the homeless, with the poor, is to share Jesus. And with that, how about a moment from our board of direction? In Luke chapter 6, 44 through 45, Jesus says, For every tree is known by his own fruit. For the thorns men do gather, for of thorns do not gather, men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. Ready? For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This last line really troubles me because uh, my mouth has an ability to still say some really vile things. And, and, and it's really indicative, according to Jesus, of my heart. And that has not, my heart has not been cleansed completely relative to how my flesh interacts with my spirit. My heart is still vile in ways. The question that we have is, Religion tells us that we need to govern our tongues. Religion, while you're in church, you don't say the F-bomb. That's what religion says. And, you know, and then we give a little leeway when you're out on the street and you have a problem in your car and you drop it well. But in church, if you drop the F-bomb, it's a really big deal, right? Because religion is always wanting us to conform to the outward external things. Fix your mouth first with the hopes that the heart would be changed. So I just want to draw on the board something really quickly and uh, short from the uh, uh, board of direction, and that is religion says, wow, super gluing those caps on. Uh, change the mouth and make it look like your heart is good. But what Jesus says is you got to change the heart. This is where everything is coming out of. And then the mouth will follow. Now, I can attest to that because in my life as a believer, my mouth has gotten a heck of a lot better as he has changed my heart. But when I was LDS, for instance, I could, in, in priesthood meeting in front of the bishop and in other places, keep my mouth right. But I can tell you my heart was far from him. So can you see the difference between what religion will try to put on you versus what a relationship with God by the Spirit puts on you? So the big question is, how do you change the human heart? What is the, what is the process? And you know the answer. You ready? Scripture calls it by the washing of the word. Many people come, they write us and they say, listen, I've become a Christian. I left Mormonism. I left this or that. I've become a Christian. Now what do I do? You start washing your heart, mind, will, emotions, 
by the word. So you open up the word and you start reading it. And guess what it does? It's as sharp as a two-edged sword. It starts dividing up your will versus God's will. And it's painful. That's why a lot of people don't read it because it, it, it presents us with ourself and it starts to wash away and it begins to work on the heart. Now, it's not gonna be perfect. Mine's certainly not perfect, but work on the heart through the spirit by the washing of the word and the mouth will follow. Okay, part eight of chopping at the root of a problem instead of hacking at the branches. Professor, MIT professor of linguistics, Dr. Noam Chomsky has been explaining how the very wealthy, the top one-tenth of the 1% of the world, ardently, even aggressively, seek to govern and control what are called the vile masses. That would be us. Uh, unless there's the top 1%, one-tenth of 1% of the world watching the program tonight. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and they do this through a number of manipulations and means. We have covered the first three of these manipulations or principles, and then we have applied them to brick-and-mortar religion. We've said, Chomsky talks about big government and multimedia corporations and, uh, and, and stuff. We're not gonna, we're not, secularism, we don't care about that. That's his deal and other people's deal, politicians. We're talking about the principles he talks about and applying them to religion. So uh, the first three manipulations in the world and what I believe is also found in the churches uh, coming down from dark powers, our first reduced democracy. That was the first principle he shared. And we applied this to the masters of religion of the faith to reduce participation of the masses in the faith down to the few who stand over the masses and keep them as uh, 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 spectators in the faith. That is to reduce democracy. That's, that's one of the things. The next thing is to shape uh, ideology. And again, we applied this to organized religion and we're gonna speak more about how they're shaping ideology as we go along. And then last week we talked about how after you've shaped ideology, you redesign the economy. And we talked about how in the secular world that meant that the US went from manufacturing to a focus on finance and how we stopped producing products and we started just to manipulate things to make money through financial uh, trickery and manipulation and that that was allowed to happen through what we call deregulation of the financial institutions where banks could now become investments, et cetera, et cetera. And then we talked about the application to the church, which was, listen, the church would love to deregulate religion and the church would love to become the one-stop shop for everybody's everything. Go to church and we'll have an amusement park in the back. Come on in and have a coffee from the coffee shop. Go on to the bookstore and get that. We will solve your every need so you never have to engage with the world. Why? So that the one or few could have domination over the many. That's the goal. So tonight, let's go to the fourth principle, which Chomsky points out is says, it's a shifting now of the burden. There's a burden out there of how to take care of everybody and how to take care of everything. There has to be a shift, all right? And of course, we will talk about this from first from the secular perspective, what Chomsky says and how it applies in his opinion. Now, understand, I don't support him in all his secular assessments, and I don't really care, and I don't think he's right on everything, and I know he's very liberal in many ways, but I do think he has some astute insights into what's historically gone on in uh, our economy, and I think those astute assessments are very applicable to brick-and-mortar religion today. So he says, the American dream, like many ideals, was partly symbolic, 
but partly very, very real. As an example, he says, in the 1950s and 60s, there was a significant economic growth in the United States. It was the golden age of economic history. And it was pretty, he says the word, egalitarian. We learned a few weeks ago, egalitarian means it was pretty fair. It was pretty equal among all socioeconomic psychographic types. It was very fair. It was equally based. To prove this, during uh, those glory days of economic history, he says the lower fifth of the population was increasing as much as the upper fifth of the population. That's an egalitarian rise in the standard of living for everybody, 1950s and 60s. And he adds that during this time when the U.S. was primarily a manufacturing center producing goods, it was concerned with its own consumers. So the corporations were producing goods and they were concerned for their consumers, right? That makes sense. If the country focuses on manufacturing products, the country wants to make sure its citizens can afford to buy the products it produces. So it has a market. Not only because it increases their profits, uh, but manufacturers, for instance, like automakers, want their employees to be able to buy the thing that they're producing. They want their employees to be able to own a car so they can drive home, so they can own a car and go to work and earn money, etc. Chomsky points out that Henry Ford historically uh, raised the salary of his workers so they would be able to buy his cars. Now that makes some economic sense. When you're raising them up so that they can be participants in the very thing you're trying to do, sell cars. But today, he suggests, we are moving to what's called an international plutonomy. It's a new word, a plutonomy for many of us. What's an international plutonomy? It's when a small percentage of the world's population internationally is gathering increasing wealth. I mean, and it is happening where there is a very small segment of society who owns 80%, 90% of the world's wealth. That's a frightening picture. Uh, in other words, Chomsky notes that what happens in the presence of an international plutonomy is that American consumers become far less of a concern to the top brass. Why? Because those top brass know that the typical American consumer cannot and will not ever buy their financial products that they use to manipulate and make money. GE, who makes most of its money now, not selling light bulbs, but selling financial instruments, knows that Joe Citizen isn't going to be participating in this. So they don't care about the common Joe Citizen. Why? They care about profits for the next quarter. Uh, even if those profits are the result of financial manipulations, they care about their own high salaries. Just look at Enron. Look at everything that's happened in corporate America and what he's saying is true. The top have only cared about their own pocketbooks. They have not cared about what happens with the masses. And then they also care about their high bonuses. I would add to Chomsky's uh, list of three, they also have access to benefits that are not accessible to the common man. Those benefits uh, packages are insane. Golden handcuffs and everything else. Or co Joe Common Joe, man, he's just left this really struggle for himself. Since these goals of the top only affect the top, uh, the plutocrats, what happens to the rest of the world? 
Well, there's a term that has been created and come about, and, and Chomsky used it, and he calls, calls us, calls them, the precariat. And it's a compound word derived from precarious proletariat. From a precarious proletariat. So you have the plutocracy, and then you have a bunch of precarious proletariats. These are the millions of working people of the world, the proletariat, the working class, who live increasingly precarious lives, increasingly due to the conditions heaped upon them by the plutocracy, and who want to control everything. Look around, you'll see its effects all around. And if you don't see it, it's probably because you haven't looked and you aren't aware of it. Take a look. Uh, in a sense, I'm a precariat because of the lifestyle I choose to live. I could be a stockbroker and go back and, and make more money, but I choose to live kind of a precariat lifestyle, precariously proletariat. But my oldest daughter, her, she and her husband, utter precariat. It is not just month to month. It is, there's not much hope for much else. They have what they have. Maybe if he stays at his job with this one corporation, he can move up. But with two boys and stuff, I mean, it's a, it's a very precarious situation. All right. So constant work just to barely make ends meet while the corporations line their pockets with, uh, with profits. So how have the plutocrats manipulated things so that they can benefit so greatly up at the top while the masses are in a state of uh, precariatism, if that's such a word? Chomsky says that what they did was they first shifted the burden. That brings us to our fourth principle. There was a shift of the burden from the producing corporations and others to the masses. And they did this beginning with taxes. They, shift the, they shifted the tax burden. Uh, during the uh, period of the great growth of the economy, 50s and 60s, taxes on the wealthy were much higher than they are today. The extreme wealthy today, they hardly pay taxes, all right? Corporate taxes were existent. The best corporations, the biggest, Apple, GE, Google, they don't pay corporate taxes. They don't pay any taxes. Did you know that? So when you have the corporations and the power guys with all the money not paying taxes, who are bringing in billions and billions and trillions of dollars, and Joe Citizen has to pay 30% tax bracket, you know that there has been a shift of the burden, right? It, didn't all, it wasn't always that way. Taxes on dividends. Dividends are something the rich participate in because they have stock portfolios and in bonds and investments, and so they get dividends and they have to pay taxes on. Well, the poor, they, the taxes on dividends have been eliminated. So there's no tax. The poor don't have dividends, so the, 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 there's no application there. And simply put, put taxes on the wealthy are, are, have been greatly reduced. But the tax system under Plutocat power and sway was redesigned so that the taxes were once paid, that were once paid by the wealthy corporations are now passed on and that's shifting the burden. Um, but there's a pretext to this and a pretext means there is a justification for this by the top 1%. They say 
uh, the plutocrats say, this tax stuff increases investments and we are increasing jobs. That's the pretext to the whole argument. But Chomsky replies, quote, there's no evidence for that. He says, if you want to increase investment in the economy, pass the proceeds on to the poor and the working people. They have to keep alive so they spend their income. That stimulates investment and leads to job growth and so on and so on. He continues, but if you're an ideologist for the masters, the top 1%, you have a very, very different objective. And then he notes, in fact, right now, it's almost absurd that the corporations have money falling out of their pockets and says GE, for example, is paying zero taxes with enormous profits. And GE, I just use them as an example, they're not alone, right? Therefore, finally, he says, the major American corporations have shifted the burden of sustaining the society through the taxes they should pay by putting it upon the rest of the population. Got that picture in mind? Fourth principle. So now let's talk about how it works regard to brick and mortar religion. That same idea. This modern church that was started by Jesus, who had no place to rest his head, who lived off the proceeds from whatever they gathered. I don't, we don't even know how, it doesn't say. I mean, he could cause a fish to get a gold piece in his mouth to pay things, I guess. The apostles, they roamed about. They didn't have places. They didn't have palaces. They didn't have, and they weren't out trying to gather it. We don't ever read of them holding a fundraiser. We don't ever read of the, of the apostles trying to raise money. We don't ever read of it, why? because that is not what it's about. Uh, I wanna talk about, are there parables, parallels to this concept? I'm gonna give you two quick stories. Here in Utah, not long ago, there was a pastor in his church was collecting funds for the poor under the auspices of for the poor. A friend of mine and his wife wanted to help that and they really felt led. So they gave $2,000, which was a lot of money to most people and was really a lot of money to them. And uh, in the end, it was announced that the goal was short of about 1,800 bucks for the, for, the, for the goal for the poor. But in the meanwhile, the pa- he le- my friend learned that the pastor and his family were awarded $2,000 to go on a Disney vacation uh, because he had to get away because of the pressures of being a pastor. And uh, so in his mind, my friend, in essence, he saw this, that he and his wife, because the monies came out of that that the proceeds for the poor to fund the, the pastor's vacation, my friend saw this as him and his wife paying for the pastor to go to Disneyland with their kids. This story perfectly represents the plutocracy and the precariat. Here in the state of Utah, one story I hear from one friend that I know, one guy, can you imagine what has happened over the culmination over the period of centuries in this? I mean, one story all in the name of Jesus and the good news. That's all in the name of it. Everything that we're doing with this stuff, right? Another story. It's not so apparent, but it subtly represents what I'm talking about. I write and study in the very same place almost every morning, and there's a pastor from a large local denomination who comes in there and, uh, for coffee, and he knows me from the show, and sometimes he'll say, morning, Sean, as he passes by. His congregation is taught to tithe, and uh, to bear this burden, uh, this religious tax, so to speak, foisted upon all, including the poor, it's given out. So last Sunday I was in this place preparing to teach and uh, 
dressed like I normally dress. And the pastor walked in and he's dressed not like he usually, he's got the finest suit, finest tie, fine shirt. And I, I know fashion, believe it or not, I studied it. And uh, I heard him tell the cashier, his face was tan, that he just returned from a, from a tropical vacation with his family. How wonderful it was, right? So I sidled up to him and put my arm around his shoulder and I said to the cashier who knows us both, can you believe that the two of us here, it's hard to believe we're both in the same business, isn't it? And uh, he grimaced and he pulled away from me. He knew exactly what I was saying to him. He knew the point. See, in Chomsky's analysis of the secular world, taxes and the shifting of tax burden plays no less of a role than tithes do in the church. They play no, the burden is shifted, not just upon the masses in the church. Listen, the burden is truly upon the poor. When a church preaches tithe, the burden is upon the poor. Let me explain why. There are two T's to consider in the shifting of burden in the church. Taxes, tax breaks and tax benefits, and tithing. Those two T's. And the churches have shifted the onus from the church and the powers that lead the church, should be Jesus, to the people. Let's talk about taxes. Who pays taxes? Well, people who have enough money and make enough money pay taxes. The tax law says that people who donate to a church can write their donations off uh, from their taxes. And so people of means, people who make money donate to the church and get the benefit of deducting it from their income taxes. Do the poor get to write off donations uh, every year? Typically not because they don't make enough money. So there's no need for the write-off. So this tax loophole in the churches benefits the affluent uh, uh, or those who have, but it does nothing for those who don't. All right, stay with me. But this isn't the only factor working against the poor in the churches, which is antithetical to the gospel message, and it's antithetical to the Old Testament message of God wanting the poor taken care of. Tithes is, really plays the role. See, tithes in the church are heaped upon everybody from the pulpit. Let's have a donation, your tithes. There's a lesson at the beginning of every year, usually in January, about the importance of tithes. Some pastors will spend one-twelfth of the year, all the month of January, talking about the importance of tithes. And they'll talk about that. Everyone has to pay it. But the rich or the wealthy get to write their tithes off, right? And so there's a benefit to them. But the poor, who typically have no application for write-off, are expected to pay tithes without any benefit being passed on to them. So again, the poor get screwed. Now I understand all the promises with tithing from a spiritual place and everything. God's gonna bless you, tithe or not, he knows what he's doing. And that Old Testament thing about if you pay, you won't be burned at his second coming is done, for, it's done with, okay? We're supposed to be cheerful givers. If you wanna give, give poor or rich, you do it that way, but the tithe. So in any case, the burden has been shifted to the poorest of the poor in the name of God. The co-shepherds of the flock are the ones pushing payment upon all. They use the widow's might as an example of why the poor should pay. That's the furthest thing from Jesus' mind, in my opinion, of what he was saying there. So the final shift of the burden by the top 1% to the masses comes by way of ministerial perks. 
family vacations, life insurance packages, benefits that aren't accessible to most people for the pastors that are provided by a direct preaching of having to pay tithes to be right with God. And they illustrate nothing but a plutocratic, uh, precariat relationship right here in the faith. Jesus had John and, and James' mother come to him, and she said, you know, in your kingdom, can Johnny and, and, and Jimmy here sit on your right and left side? And, and Jesus said, yeah, I can't give that to you. And the apostles got really ticked, it says. And so then Jesus talks to the disciples, and he says, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's the corporate world. That's the government world. That's the top 1% that Chomsky talks about. He says, the princes of the Gentiles, they exercise dominion over them, right? But listen to what he says about those who follow him. But it shall not be so among you, not. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even so, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. I didn't come to be at the top 1%, but to minister and to give my life as a ransom for many. Pastors who follow in Christ's name as his co-shepherds among the flock ought to be doing the same thing. Now, in the spirit of transparency, I have to admit my own guilt in this. I want to be transparent on everything and my own culpability in the area of personal benefits. I am personally grateful for the tax-exempt status that campus has because it's a church. Because without it, the people with means would never pay a cent to the ministry because they wouldn't be able to write it off. And they would give it to another place that they would be able to write it off to. That's just the way the world works. I'm able to justify this status in campus because we don't preach tithing. In fact, we stand against it. We don't take collections or gather donations for campus. So what, the way I see it is it's there. If you want to write it off, you can. We'll provide it to you. But we're not preaching tithing to you. I have to admit, I feel like a coward when I haven't been able to yet say, screw your tax write-off rule. We don't want it. And we don't preach politically. We don't even touch political uh, items, which is the whole reason why there's a write-off for churches. That's the only justification I have is we don't talk about political things, whether there's a write-off or not. So I kind of, you know, have a pretext to my justification. Also, also I personally benefit from a tax loophole. And that is, I receive part of my monthly income um, in the form of a housing allowance, which the IRS allows pastors to receive. Again, I feel kind of cheesy about it. That's not available to the people who are not pastors. Some reason I get to get $500 a month. No, excuse me. I get to get $24,000 a year written off. I mean, not written off, reported, but not taxable because I'm a pastor. $24,000 a year. Other people don't get that. I take advantage of it. So I earned $27,000 in income last year. And I earned 20, uh, no, I earned $27,000. Well, I earned total of about $47,000. That's with the housing allowance and the income, right? 20 of it or 27,000 of it was not taxable. I have to live with that. Very blessed to get what, we, what I received by way of this income. Uh, uh, 
But I think that in terms of what Paul says about pastors uh, being able to live, I think the amount of money that I make is commensurate with the amount that the ministry gives away and the amount of work I do. And I, I do work for my uh, hire, and there it is, transparent. I don't think this can be said when churches are preaching tithing and they are raking in millions and they're building empires and edifices and the pastors are benefiting like no other. That, to me, it's, I mean, I feel like I'm on the border of the deal. And I guess I am playing a bit of a border, but that's, just, I mean, it's the best I can do without totally just destroying the ministry financially because we, some of our bigger uh, uh, contributors, they need a write-off, and so that's why they give. Getting back to Chomsky's fourth principle applied to the church, Jesus, the founder of our faith, took a hit personally to save and reach the world. The burden was shared by his apostles. If we're in the employ of doing the same thing that he has set up to do, I think it should be similar. There should be a loss, a hit taken, not more benefits than what the people in the churches uh, uh, presently have. In the fallen secular world, the few who do not, the few will not give way to the many. They will always seek their own. They take. When this becomes the condition in the church, the church is nothing more than an extension of the world. It becomes an extension of the Gentiles like Jesus talked about. I don't think that's what he had in mind. I really don't. And it's existed for 2,000, close to 2,000 years. All right, with that, let's open up the phone lights. Next week, we'll get to principle number five. We're going to get through all of them and then get to the heart of it and what it means to the root uh, after all is said and done. In the meantime, 801-590-8413. If you want to make a call, if not, don't. And take a look at this spot. quickly out of no calls and we got time left we're going to wrap it up but i said last week maybe we should open up to the audience if anyone wants to come and be on camera make a comment or a question they're laughing at me there's great laughter and mockery they're pointing their fingers and holding their stomachs and rolling back and forth come on up reed up. you got to come up no. well you got to got to get you on a mic but I have a statement. okay wait there's a statement coming from a no-name person in the back uh, who's being handed a microphone right now. Go for it. I think you're amazing. I think this is amazing. Who else talks like this? Who, have, who talks straight to the world? Nobody. I congratulate you for the work you're doing, and I'm... So blessed to have been with you for so many years. You have. Well, I'm blessed to know you. And you realize you're complimenting a jackass. 
You realize yeah, that? One to another. <laughs> Good heart. Last week there was a movie played only one night in one theater called Is Genesis History? I, uh, I made my way to the theater. I don't know how many others did, but it's quite interesting and gives convincing evidence that Genesis is history, that God spoke through the Bible, and that is the way the world was created and made. Praise God. Can it be seen uh, in theaters still? No, it just disappeared. Wow. Maybe it will become available on DVD, but I don't know where it went. Like the dinosaurs. Very well made, very convincing. Thank you so much. So the name of that is called? Is Genesis History. Is Genesis History. Look it up. See if you can find it. Uh, it's recommended by Reed, who we nicknamed years ago the Aphorist, uh, because he's able to uh, compartmentalize great ideas down to single thoughts. It was Reed who taught me, actually, um, when someone uh, said, why did you leave Mormonism? He said in Reed's way, I got a library card. That's an aphoristic uh, statement from our friend Reed. My church, well, my other church. <laughs> He's also a trainer. Feeds uh, the, hung the hungry, the homeless, and the park. I just happened to be next to a volunteer. We started up a conversation, and she said that she had recently left Mormonism. I mean, it's happening. You're having an effect on the world. Yeah. God bless this ministry. Thank you, brother. Anybody else? Song, dance. All right, we are going to see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on the ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out. Man's awake, a storm's rising, the dawn's awaiting till the